that football group is doing. Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo here with Sam Monson. We're back in studio. And uh, yeah, it's good to be back. We're reviewing all things Super Bowl 56. Another exciting game, Sam. Yeah, awesome game. Um, actually, some wild stuff in that game. Uh, fascinating storylines left and right. Both teams, uh, the Bengals losing, obviously. Last time the city's going to be lit up orange. I know. Maybe I was thinking maybe they carried into the offseason a little bit as a thank you to the Bengals. Seems unlikely. But, it does but seem sure. unlikely. <laughs> There's no parade. No. So I can't take the kids That's to that. That's a real bummer. It was going to go like right by the office. Yeah. We we're going to be able to use the, uh, oh, the, the rooftop. Yeah. The terrace? Yeah. Yeah. No anymore. Yes. Unless they have, I mean, that, that's possible, right? They have like a, a thank you commiseration parade. I could easily see the Bengals playing a little uh, AFC, cha- having an AFC championship parade. Like, you know, the bus is already paid for. Yeah. How's the traffic going to be in LA for their parade? Pretty bad. Yeah. Pretty bad if, if, if being there is any uh, indication. Well, congrats to the Los Angeles Rams. Congrats to Zach Robinson yeah. getting a Super Bowl ring. Former PFF employee now has himself a Super Bowl ring. Yeah. Used to work for me. Look at him. Yeah. Look at him now. Used to be on the podcast. He was right here on this channel breaking down right. Sean McVay's offense. You go back far enough in the PFF uh, NFL podcast archives, you'll find Zach Robinson. We had our own... You know, day of the podcast where him and I would we, we called it the big time throwcast, which I still believe no is a great name. No, it's not. But you know, Zach and I used to break down quarterbacks every week, and um, I'm pretty sure if you go back into the YouTube archives, the reason why he got his job at the Rams, he did this video breakdown on McVay's offense, and he was like, "Look, to take this to the next level, all you have to do is hire me. We'll yeah. trade for Matthew Stafford, mm-hmm. right? Maybe grab OBJ, yeah, and we'll, and we'll and we'll bring this thing home. Laid it all out. I'm pretty sure that is the actual." Uh, game plan that Zach laid out. There was a Super Bowl ad on yesterday with uh, Idris Elba that was, um, you know, booking.com or something. And, like, the gist of the ad was like, you know, we're, we're amazing at what we do. We are terrible at naming things. It reminded me a lot of you. Thank you. The big pack. Thank big, you. Big time forecast. Big time throwcast. Don't mix it up. It's no, not no, the no. big time forecast. Big time forecast. throwcast. That was big it. time Such a throwcast. Name. I think my wife, by the way, Kelly, came up with the forecast. Huh. Name. Okay. Well, that's a lot better than the big time throwcast. Oh, yeah. She's better than me at a lot of things. So, not, not all that surprising. Um, so, we're going to go We're gonna go through the game, and then we're going to talk some QB carousel. It is amazing to me, Sam, that given our, oh, I don't know, 15 hours of podcasting that we do every single week, we mm-hmm. haven't even touched on the Kyler Murray Instagram drama. Yes. Or Love the Carson that. Wentz, you know, you know kind of news that do maybe, we, as of today, you might get traded. Do we have, like, a, a Gen Z child coming on to translate this for us, or have we got to do this by ourselves? No, we're going we're gonna to navigate the Insta news oh, no. ourselves. So, okay. That all I know well. is we may or may not have a co-worker here who has had his relationship status 
not just change, but like literally had the uh, the transaction of girlfriend to no girlfriend occur in his Insta DMs. So okay. perhaps we should get that person on here at some point to to help. But we're uh, navigating this ourselves this morning. All right. No one else. No one else is going to do this. No other Gen Xers or whatever we are. Zennials. Zennials. Yeah. No other Zennials are going to try to handle this. Great. I can only go well. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Again, we appreciate everybody for uh, tuning in all last week to our preview stuff. Don't forget, we did AFC and NFC offseason needs. Those are evergreen, Sam. That's what we call it in the industry. So those are always there. They're always there and live. Hmm. And uh, I don't know. Where was it that somebody really uh, summed it up? Was it in the, the comments on YouTube? No, the comments for the uh, the at PFF NFL pod uh, Twitter account basically, you know, summed up the podcast in a nutshell. Yeah, uh, get some receivers, it? get some offensive linemen. Nobody needs a running back. Next team. This guy, Ledger, at Ledger status. Uh, I love the PFF NFL pod need show. Well, Steve, they need a quarterback, receivers, and maybe some offensive line. But, Sam, we know one thing no team needs, a running back. Repeat times 32. It's basically, yeah, it's pretty much nailed it. That's it. And then just extend that out for, uh, you know, a couple hours. A lot of hours per yeah. conference. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get into uh, let's get into the Super Bowl. We've got uh, PFF NFL Daily. Did you put that up yet on uh, YouTube, or is that coming up after this? Uh, I went up uh, almost immediately. It's been up for oh great hours. All right, hours. so we did we did our immediate reaction on YouTube. Audio's been up and everything, but we'll get into into depth here. What are your high level thoughts? Rams twenty three, Bengals thir- uh, twenty. Uh, high level coming out of this game. What are your takeaways? Um, well, I mean, a lot of high-level thoughts. I, I'm really happy for a lot of people on the Rams. Obviously, Zach Robinson we talked about. It's awesome to see him get a ring. But Andrew Whitworth to get one at the end of his career, what I assume will literally be the end. I would imagine Whitworth, you know, rides off into the sun now, even though he's still playing at a high level. Yeah. For him, like, what, what's the point in coming back? You know what I mean? Um, Aaron Donald getting a ring, whether or not he comes back. And, wow, that was a, a bombshell to be dropping in the pregame. Like, hey. If the Rams win a Super Bowl, don't be surprised to see Aaron Donald retire. What? Excuse me? Aaron Donald, the best defensive player in the NFL, the best player in the NFL, will just walk away at the peak of his powers if they win a ring. Um, great to see him get one. I don't think it matters that much for him in terms of validation and you know legacy and all those kinds of things, but just nice for the guy to get one like that. You know, Three-time defensive player in the year. You could make an argument that he should be a six-time defensive player of the year at this point just for him to get the personal validation of, hey, he got the thing that he was chasing the whole time. But, but if he, it's kind of like when um, like the Mannings might be buying an NFL team and they were just kept making a lot of money. And at some point it's like, well, how many millions do you actually need? Well, if the goal is to eventually buy an NFL team, then you have to keep stacking up big contracts. Donald's goal, not his goal, but like he's in the conversation with Lawrence Taylor. So it, it, if you're trying to separate Aaron Donald and Lawrence Taylor, at some point down the line, the... The ring matters, right? You're, you, I mean, you're already going to be first ballot Hall of Famer and all that stuff. It does for a guy. It's at least going to come up, maybe. right? But I don't, and especially the way this happened, right? I don't even know. Like, if you're if you don't play quarterback, do rings really even impact a guy's legacy? Like, when, I think it only. I think it just adds to it. When these, you yeah, know, he was great, but he didn't win anything. You still hear that about Joe Thomas. You still he? hear it, yeah. I mean, people still think that Joe Thomas is great. Not but if he like, was the left tackle on a Super Bowl winning team, it would change perception a little bit. I don't know. It comes up to be like, you know, how much did, like how much was, um, it comes up as a sort of, hey, it's a missing thing in the guy's career. But it yeah. doesn't, I don't think it ever changes anybody's idea of how good the guy was. Like nobody's 
saying Joe Thomas is a lesser player because he didn't win a Super Bowl ring. It's like, yeah, but look how look how little left tackle actually matters if the thing around you is a mess. Even Joe Thomas didn't win a Super Bowl ring. Like I don't I honestly don't think for any position outside of quarterback it even changes anybody's analysis. And I'm not even sure it should for a quarterback, but it does. Anyway, yeah. I mean, it's it's a nice capper to everything that Aaron Donald's done. Yeah, and then obviously Total validation for the Rams, for their entire approach to everything, whether or not you think they're all in for this season, quote-unquote, whether or not you buy into this strategy of stars and scrubs that Eric has been talking about, just everything they've been doing, right? They're one of the teams out there. This is a copycat league. Everyone's doing things broadly the same. It's very cookie-cutter how teams operate in the NFL these days, and there are a couple of teams out there that are doing things in, compl- in a completely different way. And the Rams are one of those teams. And because of that, like everybody hates things that, that aren't the same. Everyone hates something that's different. So people generally crapped all over the Rams strategy. And this is validation. This is, it worked, right? That the Eli Manning gif, right? The, the double finger, like the Rams just did that to everybody. That, you know, and if you hated what we did, Screw you. It worked. We got a ring. And now it doesn't matter if it blows up tomorrow. The whole thing can implode. We got the ring we were chasing. We won. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I, that I think is fun about the Rams' strategy is that it was calculated. And then, you know, I, I, again, coming into this, I thought, hey, it's, it is somewhat validated, right? You got to the Super Bowl and you, you got there with players who, you know, you needed. Like, you needed OBJ down the stretch. And you needed Stafford, obviously, to, to go on this playoff run. And Ramsey was a part of that and everything. So it was calculated, right? It's not like it's not like the Rams went at this without like there's the meme of uh Les Need mm. that turned into a mug, you know. F them picks. F them picks is is the meme. It's it's I mean it's it's funny, but but they were they were they were literally calculating this stuff, right? Like yeah. what is the calculation? What is what's the math? What's the upside of Stafford plus Ramsey and, and obviously all these moves are in isolation and through multiple years but it was researching what late first round picks do and taking that chance that we're going to be always drafting in the late first round and all that stuff so we'll have plenty of time to talk about our team's going to replicate this or our teams on the other end of it going to benefit from it right there's three or four more teams that think they're close and keep doing it. I mean the Chiefs kind of did it last year going to get Orlando Brown they didn't do it every year but if more teams are willing to trade, uh, you know, trade their late first rounders for players. Some other team who needs a lot of talent is going to benefit from that too. And look, I I differ from you in that I think it needed this win to validate everything they did. I think if they'd lost in the Super Bowl again, it wouldn't have been a success. The strategy, the plan of build everything for this one run at it, getting there isn't good enough. You got there before and it wasn't good enough, and now you very quickly realized that that wasn't even going to function anymore and you had to dump Jared Goff and make this giant move to go in a different direction. If they hadn't gotten it done this time, particularly the way that game unfolded, if they hadn't gotten it done again, I don't think it would have been a success. But they did, so it does. It validates everything. And that, I think, is is going to be a really interesting talking point. One, we're now going to get to see, okay, you got it done, you won, congratulations. Now, having won the ring... Can you keep this thing even vaguely together? Or was this literally, was this the all-in approach that everybody thought it was? Where 
you get the ring, and now the whole thing falls to pieces, and you have to rebuild from scratch? Or can you actually keep this more or less on the rails, right? Can you keep an Aaron Donald around? Can you keep Sean McVay? That's another bombshell that came out that he might walk away. I know. Everybody now, he, was teasing retirement all of a sudden. He kind of quashed that after the game. He was like, no, I'm here. But, you know, Whitworth presumably is going to retire. They've got a bunch of pieces hitting free agency. How much can they tie this team back together next year or rebuild it in an offseason to take another run at this? But that, I think, is a fascinating thing. And then, of course, the whole conversation, the analysis, the evaluation, the retrospective on Matthew Stafford generally is going to be a really interesting discussion because, you know, Dan Orlovsky is going to be obnoxious today. <laughs> Because Dan Orlovsky believes that Matthew Stafford is the greatest quarterback to ever walk the earth. Because um, he saw him up close and personal, and Stafford did a lot of things Dan O couldn't do. Yes. Uh, and he's been on that the, the entirety of the way, right? And because Stafford now won a Super Bowl ring, it's like validation. He's going to be doing dances. He's going to be like running around the studio. People will laps. forget that he had Carson Wentz as a top seven quarterback. Hands MVP, down. I MV- believe, MVP. Just, yeah. yeah, well, you'll forget about that. Sure. Um, but anyway, I, so it was interesting because I know that's coming this morning, right? And I'm sure there's a bunch of people I've already <coughs> muted in my mentions, you know, telling me about it right now. Um, I went and listened to our, our daily podcast reacting to the Matthew Stafford trade from a year ago. A more, year ago. More okay. than a year ago now. Uh, to find out what, what we said. Like, how, how off were we, right, based off the fact that Stafford just won a Super Bowl ring? Uh-oh, what did we do? We actually didn't. It was... It was measured. It was reasonable. It was like you asked me the question, how much better did the Rams get with Stafford? And my immediate words were, we don't know. Nobody knows. But we're going to find out, right? And the, the Rams obviously thought that they get a huge amount better, which is why they made such this big move. But what's really fascinating, I think, is that it did kind of split the difference in everybody's opinion. Um, or, you know, there the, were the Dano people that were like, oh, Strap in, boys. We're going to get something special. We're going to see Matthew Stafford as the greatest quarterback to ever live. The Rams are going to roll. They're going to be completely unstoppable. We might as well just hand them the Lombardi now. And then there were the other people that were like, Stafford is no better than Jared Goff. This is like this is a sideways move that just cost them a ton of money. The, the answer ended up being like almost exactly down the middle, which is Stafford was a significant upgrade over Jared Goff even a significant upgrade over 2018 Jared Goff. And I think you saw that in both those Super Bowls. There were throws that, ja- that, that were there for Jared Goff in 2018 that he didn't hit right. in that game that Stafford hit in this game, right? The, the dagger to Cooper Cup late in that game, you know, the, the dig threaded that through a window of defenders. That's a throw Jared Goff almost certainly isn't making and was a throw Matthew Stafford needed to make for them to win this game. That throw, I mean, it, it obviously it's boiling this down to way too simple a thing to be like, hey, that one throw, that's why you make this move. But you can kind of do that, right? Like that one throw illustrates the reason they went and made that move. That's a throw that Stafford makes, Goff doesn't, and that's genuinely the difference between getting a ring and not. Um, but that was, that was a pretty consistent theme throughout the game too. I yeah. Mean, I was getting the feeling throughout this game as the Bengals took the lead, and it looked like they had the momentum. Now, I mean, it just they the, the game had started to swing in their favor from a score standpoint. That's the most important thing, not the momentum. So the Bengals have the lead, and then Stafford gets a little banged up. OBJ's already out. 
the, but the the Bengals offense hit this lull. And as the Bengals offense hit this lull and Burrow's getting sacked every single drive, sometimes multiple times, it was like, man, this is going to be Stafford. I think I said it to you with like seven minutes left. It's going to be another Stafford fourth quarter comeback, right? And that was the consistent theme throughout this season. I mean, he was – and he had this element with the Lions when you put the ball in Stafford's hands. doesn't mean you always come through. But you have the ability, right? He had the ability to hit those tight window throws, um, to to stretch the field in different places. Um, he also got smart and stopped throwing to guys like Ben Skoranek and threw to Cooper Cup, who even if he was covered, uh, that was that was the difference, though. right? But so just to kind of put a bow on the Stafford thing for the season, he's going to end up once the Super Bowl grade is in there with a. An overall PFF grade of about 85. About 85. Right? So go back and get my prediction. Nailed it. Yeah, which so which is slightly better than anything he's done in Detroit. I think his career high before this was 82. Yep. Um, and the difference between the 82 and the 85 is almost 100% the playoffs, right? Yeah. So during the regular season, his grade was actually slightly lower than his peak grades in Detroit. The results were better because the Rams have a better offense. They have Sean McVay, all those kinds of things. So what we saw is Stafford didn't change. Stafford was the same guy he's always been in Detroit. The results are better because Stafford plus the Rams is greater than Stafford plus Detroit. Um, And then what we saw is the capacity to do what he just did, which is be better in the playoffs, improve, go on a run where he doesn't pitch the ball to the defense three times a game. And if he does that for three straight games, the Rams progress and win playoff games and end up with a championship. So the Rams got validated. This was the the playoff run was exactly what they bought into. The capacity for Matthew Stafford to elevate his game and do things that Jared Goff simply was not capable of doing. But the overall net of this, which is it's it's kind of like what the Vikings bought into with Kirk Cousins when they signed him, which is this is a guy that's capable of doing something that the current guys we have are not, right? And if everything else stays the same, he could go on a run, and that's what will take us over the edge. They basically got that, which is the, the, the team is still good enough, um, and if Stafford catches fire at the right time, we go on a run, we win a championship. That's what they ended up with. So this, I, I don't think the, the people that thought that Stafford plus the Rams equals just unstoppable awesomeness start to finish, I think were wrong. The people that thought that Stafford is not an upgrade over Jared Goff at all were wrong. The answer lied somewhere, lay somewhere in the middle, which is Stafford's upgrade was enough if things fall in the right way for him to be a big part of winning this team a championship. The PFF NFL podcast is sponsored by Western and Southern Financial Group. While you focus on roster moves, Western and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home, planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow? Well, Western and Southern's playbook of life insurance, investment, and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day. Team up to understand needs and address goals with a game plan built just for you. Get started at westernsouthern.com slash PFF. Yeah, so I, I do want to get to the actual game in a minute, yeah. but... The, the Stafford thing reminds me of, if, if we can think back that far, early last decade, right? The high-level narrative of what do you need at the quarterback position? Well, you need a guy who's capable, right? You need a guy who's capable of catching fire, which you just laid out, because Eli Manning had done it twice, and Joe Flacco did it once. And, and then we hit this stretch where Tom Brady was in the Super Bowl every other year, and one of the years that he wasn't in, Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs win it. So we got into this elite quarterback territory and since 2009 you know Breeze has one 
Aaron Rodgers has one. Eli has that run. Flacco has that run. But Russell Wilson has one, right? And, you know, we had the one year of Denver and the crazy defense, the one year of Foles. But overall, we've gotten into this, like, elite quarterback deal. But again, now I'm going to circle back to this idea of, like, what's the future? Now that, now that Tom Brady's not going to be in every other Super Bowl, you're going to see more. Are, are we going to see more Matthew Stafford-like runs, right? Uh, like, Trey Lance is going to go on, like, every, you know, whoever. Whoever is capable of that high-end play, or do we start to get back into, like, well, the Chiefs and Mahomes and the Bengals and Burrow and Josh Allen and the Bills are going to, they're going to be there every, like, that next tier of elite quarterbacks are going to be, are going to be there every year. I think, I don't think we're going to see, you know, someone like Brady being in the Super Bowl every year. So you're going to get more Stafford-like runs. So does that pivot the strategy back to give me the, the high end and capable? And, and we're going to talk Carson Wentz at the end of this show. We're going to talk a little QB carousel and all that stuff and the process that the Colts went through. Because it was, it was like, I think, were they in on Stafford last year? Like kind of in on Stafford? And then kind of settled for Carson Wentz. But like the thought process was the same. Well, they had nobody, though. They weren't just upgrading. They had nobody, and they needed someone, and they needed someone capable, and obviously it didn't pay off, but teams have to make those, those kind of moves. We'll break that down later. Let's get into the game. Um, you want to do this how the newspapers do it? You start at, the, start at the end of the game and work backwards? That's how a newspaper does it? Yeah, they, they go with like, yeah, it was a game-winning touchdown, and then, they, and then it's like, oh, by the way, in the first quarter, OBJ had a touchdown. Nobody even knows what a newspaper is anymore. What do you... Yeah, I used to like read it. I almost bought the Inquirer in Cincinnati like yesterday you know, uh-huh. just for, the, for the souvenir. Like the history? Well, to teach Harry. Frame it. To teach my six-year-old. Because what people like, used to do, they used to get this yeah. crappy like, paper where they got ink all over your fingers, and they used to sit here and read things. Yeah. And he's like, why didn't you just use it? look at your phone? Yeah. Yeah. Well, because he's always trying to steal my iPad and be like, Daddy, the Bengals have 13 wins. And he's looking at all the teams. I'm like, well, I, I want to give him the newspaper to read yeah. instead. And he's like, where do I find that information here? Why does yeah. it not and It's not as easy because he can't read completely yet, right? So they got no logos or anything like that. So. One last point, by the way, to make with the Stafford thing is they, they, the Rams needed moves that happened after Stafford arrived for this to work, right? Remember, sure. like, one of the issues with the Stafford thing was – Remember that that offense not, doesn't just need to get better from a year ago. It needs to get good enough that it offsets. Why I did you, it again. It needs to get good enough that it offsets whatever regression they're going to get on the defensive get the side. Get the camera of the ball, off me. Right? With uh, the number one defense in the NFL last year. Where are my year. cough buttons? Sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry. I'm very, I'm very unprofessional here. Mm. The number right. one defense in the NFL last year was going to get worse this year, and it did. Uh, so they needed to not just be a better offense this year, but be enough, good enough that it offsets uh, how much worse they're going to get on the defensive side of the ball. So suddenly the acquisitions of guys like Von Miller and then you know OBJ before he got hurt were big parts of this that were not there when people were making their initial Stafford analysis, right? So when you're sort of re, when you're bringing up old takes, I mean, hey, you guys got it wrong. Like that's part of the equation here is that things changed after Stafford arrived that made this possible. Anyway, the game. Sorry, and me choking. Really yeah. cool. Well, so I want to add to that too. This is why we're going to be here for twenty hours. <laughs> I heard I was talking to a you know, former NFL executive, and he was using the term batting average for you know hitting on picks or hitting on decisions, right? And I think the Rams showed it's it's less about because batting average is just how often do you hit, right? Do you know what slugging percentage is though? No, I don't want to. So better hits are worth more, doubles, triples, and home runs in slugging percentage, right? 
And slugging percentage is a better indicator of you know, offensive performance in baseball. But I think slugging percentage is probably a better way of describing all of these moves. Because if you hit on Stafford, it's a home run, Sam. If you hit on OBJ, it's not just a single, it's a double or a triple. If you hit on Von Miller, that's a home run, right? I mean, that's it's basically just it's a whole bunch of high upside plays. And the value of Von Miller hitting in this stretch, which he did, might be the value of two players instead of just one. It's actually, you know, the payout is just greater. And I think that's a huge part of the Rams strategy that obviously paid off as well. As we get into the game, mm. you mentioned on the daily that the biggest turning point in the game was OBJ getting hurt. And I, right? Yeah. It, it, it absolutely was. He had slot fade for a touchdown early on, he had the deep crosser. I thought it was pretty clear that the Rams were going to feature Odell Beckham. They were going to feature him in the slot against Mike Hilton. Um, and Hilton's, you know, he's a solid player. He's not, he's, he's better. Mike Hilton is a good in and around the line of scrimmage player for the most part. He can tackle, he can blitz, he can play the run, short area coverage. But Mike Hilton's not like your shut down nickel corner. He's not Chris Harris. And I thought the Rams identified that. And that was a big. That was going to be a big part of their game plan, and it was early on. And then OBJ gets hurt, and it was like those same routes were then going to Van Jefferson, or some of those targets were going to Ben Skoranek, who just, man, timing and ball skills for him are just off, and uh, it really took away from the Rams. And, and I thought they were doing that in part because they thought the Bengals were going to have good answers for Cooper Cup. So Cooper Cup was, I don't want to say non-existent, but he wasn't a huge part of the offense until the until the final drive. Because it was going to be an OBJ game, and then it turned into a Van Jefferson game. But that was a big part of why this game was close. If OBJ was out there, he was he was cooking, man. Yeah, I think if he'd stayed healthy for the game, the Rams might have won this reasonably handily. Um, it was it was interesting because this there was very defined things that needed to happen in this game that teams both teams have been working on like for two weeks, right? One was how the hell do you stop Aaron Donald from single handedly wrecking the game, and two was Cooper Cup on, on the Rams' offense needs to be – we need to figure a way of taking that away. Um, so you could see all the things they were doing to try and neutralize Donald. They also had a pretty good plan to slow up Cooper Cup. And that was fine, but the Rams have an answer or, or an alternative to when teams have figured out how to slow down Cup, which is that's when OBJ has to win one-on-one and we get him the ball. And as soon as he went down – you started to see the fragility of this approach of stars and scrubs, which is one of the reasons this has been working for the Rams is that they've been very, very, I I hesitate to use the word lucky, but they've avoided injuries at a weird rate. Now, I know uh, Robert Woods went down, but they they did that at the exact time they brought in OBJ, right? So they kind of, let's call that one a wash, or at least they had a contingency there. But the whole point of this is we've concentrated all the resources in like five guys, and if one of those five guys goes down, we are boned because there's just no, there's no backup plan there, right? If Donald isn't there, everything changes. If Cooper Cup isn't there, everything changes. If Jalen Ramsey isn't there, everything changes. And that hasn't happened for them at all in the last couple of years. They've been incredibly healthy. And maybe there's like, maybe there's something they're doing there, right? 
in terms of sports science and load management and injury risk and all those kinds of things, we have no idea about that. But the point is that hadn't hit yet. And then all of a sudden in the biggest game in the, the season, bam, ACL gone immediately. Everything changes. Now the things the Bengals are doing to take away Cooper Cup are still working. Cooper Cup is still not a factor. And all of a sudden, instead of OBJ winning one-on-one in those advantageous matchups, now you've got to find someone else to win, whether it's Van Jefferson, whether it's Skoranek, whoever. Don't forget, yeah, Tyler Higby was out. Right. As well. I mean, so, so all of a sudden, your second and third options were out. Right. So all of a sudden, you're down to these guys that simply are not productive at the moment. And, you know, the people were kind of railing against the description of the Rams are out of weapons because you've got Van Jefferson, who is a high pick, right? They've spent, there's, there's investment in some of these players, but they're simply not good enough yet. Like, these guys are not, they're not capable of winning one on one on the outside in the way that OBJ or Robert Woods are. And that changed everything. All of a sudden, the Rams' offense is simply no longer moving the ball. They can't run the ball. They, for some reason, persist in trying. They're running into a brick wall every time, and nobody's winning anymore. And that looked like it was going to change how this game was going to go. If OBJ had been there the whole game, I think the Rams win and cover. Without OBJ, it looked for the majority of the game like, Cincinnati has this one now. I think the stars and scrubs thing is maybe a little extreme, though, because remember the second part of the strategy, and I'm sure we, I'm sure I said this on the daily last year when we broke down the Stafford trade. The second piece of this is the question: Can the Rams continue to hit on their mid-round picks? Right. I mean, they didn't, they didn't draft Cooper Cup thinking here's going to he's going to be our star receiver to go with our star Aaron Donald and our star Jalen Ramsey. Right. I mean, they, Cooper Cup has become a star, and I mean this thing. Arguably the best wide receiver season of all time. If you talk about statistics, mm-hmm. first team all pro, his playoff run, he had the most catches in a playoff run, all that stuff, right? Game winner in the Super Bowl. I mean, it's incredible. But they have multiple offensive linemen who were drafted, a guy like Austin Corbett that they took a shot on in year three in a trade with the Browns. I mean, they, they part of this strategy is assigning positional value, investing more at corner, receiver, pass rusher, and then filling in your, you know, Ernest Jones at linebacker as a third-round pick, and safety is this, you know, revolving door of sixth-round picks, and Eric Weddle off its Peloton or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it is, it's a little stars and scrubs, but they're also hitting on a lot of those mid-round picks. I just wanted to say, that's, that's a part of it. To me, that's the biggest thing going forward to see if, if they do try to get the band back together, can they keep hitting on their mid-round picks? Because that was, that's the reason why Seattle never became a dynasty. Right? Seattle never became a dynasty because they couldn't replicate Richard Sherman in the fifth round and Camp Chancellor in the fourth round and all of the things that they hit on from 2010 through 13 or whatever that time period was, Bobby Wagner in the second round. They couldn't replicate that. Um, that's going to be, I think, the key going forward for the Rams. As far as this game goes, let's just stick with Rams on offense. Bengals did a really good job defensively. I thought the Bengals linebackers, Jermaine Pratt, Logan Wilson, they did a really nice job. I thought Wilson was fantastic. He was everywhere. I mean, they were shooting gaps. They were, they were taking the Rams out. We had um, – it was an inter- interesting debate early. So if you listen to um, – I mean, Deontay Lee was debating Eric Eager in one of our side chats. And Deontay, who's a you know, football coach and certainly sees the game differently than, say, Eric would – Eric's coming, you know, through the angle that okay, there's a whole bunch of wasted 
first round, first down runs, right? And we even talked about that too. You don't want to slam your head into a brick wall too much. And Deontay was trying to make the point that a Shanahan type of offense is information gathering for play action, right? I mean, they're they're saying how are you how are you fitting against the run against this formation and this look and. And I think there's some truth to that, right? I mean, it's, if, if you're saying, I want to know how their safeties are going to rotate because we're going to attack them later, it's less about running the ball to establish it or to, you know, have success. And then this is why people say, well, success is overrated. Attempts are, um, are body attempts blows. Are body, blow, body blows, attempts. But if you do have a good play caller who is gathering information and saying, here's how the linebackers are playing this, here's how the safeties are playing this, then you know which play actions to call. Then you know that the other side, the priority calls that made it to the broadcast that McVeigh had, you know where you're attacking there. I think that was an interesting element to the discussion because certainly like there was a point in the game where the Rams were averaging 1.3 yards per attempt and yeah. Stafford was the leading rusher and they were averaging 12 yards per attempt on, you know, through the air and it felt like a bunch of wasted plays. Yeah, and I think there's probably an argument that early in the game – it's worth doing like it is information gathering you are getting but it kept going right and like later in the game you're like okay what can you possibly be learning now that you didn't already know why are you still running them into a brick wall that isn't moving anywhere and it was reaching the point where the Bengals simply knew what the Rams were doing right they they knew that oh when they do this it's a run play and we're just firing off and stuffing this thing. Yeah. Like, we're, your tight ends are not capable of blocking our defensive ends, and we are going to kill your run every time you do it. So I think you can make the case that early in the game, the Rams were running the ball, and it didn't really matter if they were having success there because they could have been gleaning information to use later in the game. Later in the game, they were still running the ball with no success. And at this point, now you are just banging your head against a brick wall. And one of the underrated aspects of this game is that, like, Sean McVay's legacy, and look, the guy's 36 years old. He's the youngest head coach to ever win a Super Bowl. It's not like we are done, whatever happens. But the narrative on Sean McVay, I think, was balancing on a knife edge in this game. If he had gone 0-2 in Super Bowls, having had the game that he had in this game, which is, what the hell are you still doing running the ball into this brick wall? This is a, this is a bad head coaching performance. Um, after the last one, which was a bad head coaching performance with zero adjustments, we would have started to hear a lot of negative about Sean McVay. At the same time, though, your narrative, not yours, but like a, a lot of the stuff we've talked about with McVay is once you hit weeks 12, 13, and 14 – the NFL adjust to him, and he's never yeah. had that counterpunch, and it looked like that was going to happen again. That's what I'm saying this year. So, but even but he got past that already. Like they they got to the Super Bowl, they did change their offense this year. It was a Stafford driven offense instead of a Goff driven offense. It was far less under center play action bootleg. It was a lot more Stafford, uh, you know, in empty and in things that he did well. And I think that's where the Rams deserve a lot of credit for the Stafford move. They identified. Things Stafford does well, identified how to adjust their offense. It did look like it did look bleak at one point when they you know lost to the Titans and lost to the Niners and you know had some rough games down the stretch. But they did, and that's why back in March or whatever, or whenever he first got into the building, the vibes coming out of the Rams are like, man, things are different. It's different with nine around. We were hearing those rumblings behind the scenes on air. They were saying it. They felt like things were different. So I think McVeigh in the offense, even in yesterday's game, if there were too many runs or whatever. Can we, so I think he handled 
that well as far as how they built their offense. I mean, I think I think McVeigh got lucky that this game ended the way it did. There's some luck involved too with and, the way the and McVeigh's McVeigh's legacy. So remember, like this year, there was a brief period where people were giving Kyle Shanahan all kinds of crap, and it's like, eh, is Kyle Shanahan actually any good? You know, the 49ers are stumbling. Jimmy G's playing like crap. The this maybe Kyle Shanahan is, isn't actually all that right. Uh, that we would have heard that a lot about uh, about Sean McVay if the, this game had ended a different way. If Joe Burrow, you know, if the, they'd held that final drive, Joe Burrow had the or he executed the win. But because it ends up going the other way, it's like oh, McVay is back to being boy wonder, completely validated, youngest head coach, winning head coach ever. Like That's how it goes, right? everything's going right. It's just amazing how. How much the the narrative would have been would have swung either way based off the final sort of few moments of this game. Few players I think are worth talking about. Eric Weddle. Eric Weddle had the green dot for this game, right? Which means you're the defensive play caller. Yeah. Eric Weddle was sitting on his couch like three weeks ago. Sitting on his Peloton. Sitting on his Peloton three weeks ago. He was at least working out. Maybe. I mean he just said he was. Who knows if he was telling the truth? It's true. Um so to even have that responsibility for this game, I think, was wild. Like, this is a guy that literally wasn't in the building just a few weeks ago, and not even in the system before. Um, rocks back in, becomes an important part of the team in the playoff run, and then gets given the responsibility to call the defense plays in the Super Bowl. That was wild. X's then, and O's genius. Passwords, not so much, but X's and O's genius. Then very early in the game, goes in on a tackle, immediately gets up, clutching, and it, it comes out that he, like, tore his, ruptured his pec, right? And it looked bad right away. They strap him up. They send him back out there. And as people were saying, like, I mean, what does it matter to him, right? He's not going to need it tomorrow. Like, this is it. It's, it's this game or nothing, right? So he goes out there and plays a game. Is still hitting with the gammy shoulder throughout the game. Just insane performance from him to actually play an entire game, essentially, with a ruptured pec strapped up with a, you know, a, a brace, and just go out there and play the majority of a Super Bowl like that is phenomenal. It, it was incredible, and he got a little uh, he got a little chippy after the game, calling out Tom Telesco, the Chargers GM, who obviously at one point moved on from mm. Weddle and thought that he was done. And here's Weddle straight off his couch, C.J. Anderson style for the Rams, and uh, right into the Super Bowl. He's yeah, a I mean, if he now. if he just gone out there, played played well, was the defensive play caller, it would have been a pretty incredible story coming off the couch a few weeks ago to do it. While like while injuring yourself in such a way that it would normally shut a guy down, not just for that game, but like for the year, you know, a year is is nuts. I mean, he that's that's one of the most incredible stories out there, and it's just like a sidebar to this whole Super Bowl thing. Yeah, all decade safety. By the way, he finishes with a ninety plus run defense grade in his four games down the stretch here. Big part of the Niners win, and obviously, as you mentioned, big part of yesterday's win. Did you have someone else to highlight? Um, I mean, there's a bunch. We talked uh, Logan Wilson already, I thought, had a really good game. Jermaine Pratt, both of those guys. Jesse Bates continued to make big plays yep. in the playoffs. I think he's sort of holding his hand up in terms of, hey, pay me. <laughs> We've done this dance long enough. I'm here making big plays. Let's start giving me the bag. Um, Did you see the, uh, the NFL was having some fun with uh, Eli Apple? A lot of people were having some fun with Eli Apple. Yeah. Eli Apple... He trash-talked last you know, two weeks ago. Um, he came out before the game being like, I want to cover, cover Cooper Cup. Put me on him, coach. That's like, look, come on. 
have a little bit of self-awareness here, Eli. You are not a good cornerback. I was waiting for you. You're Eli Apple. And that was going to replace the Joe Flacco, maybe. Yeah. You're, you're Eli Apple. You're not a good corner, Eli. You've never really been a good corner. You can't catch. Uh, you can't really cover either. And these are these are two pretty important parts of playing cornerback in the NFL. You got given the responsibility to cover Cooper Cup, you know, at one occasion in the game, and you were 10 yards away from him. He scored a touchdown. Now, okay, sure, it's play action, and, you know, there are things to be aware of. But, like, you know, here's your, here's your job. This is what you're asking for here, and you're nowhere. Like, yeah, come on. Like, just that. So that was bad, and yet my favorite thing was – Vernon Hargreaves getting himself I couldn't believe a 15-yard penalty despite not even playing. I again. thought it was a fan at first. Only Vernon Hargreaves, I think, could come into the Super Bowl with a grade under 50 and have it get worse despite not suiting up. I've never been more wrong on a player <laughs> than Vernon Hargreaves. <laughs> never been more wrong. He was so good at Florida. He was good at Florida when he was young. And he could, he could play zone, he could play man, movement skills were great. Like the only question about Hargrave seemed like size. And then he showed up to the combine. Jacked. Rocked up. And that should have been the warning, right? It's like, this is not the body type you played football with at Florida. He was like 5'10", 205 or something like that with like Tristan Wirf's thighs. Mm. And now he's, uh, he's not as big anymore. But, yeah, he, he has played multiple roles, multiple schemes, multiple teams, and just never really played football well in the NFL. Yeah. And then he goes to the Super Bowl and picks up. the. There was a point in the game where that was the only penalty was mm-hmm. Vernon Hargraves running into the end zone. Yeah. It's like, it's okay, Vernon. You can't hurt us today. You're not suiting up. Ah. The guess again, sir. Yeah. Touche. Runs coaches. out there with his, with his slides on, you know, celebrating with the hoodie. And it's like. 15-yard penalty. Oh, man. I thought it was just like like a worker for the team that had his Bengals gear on that just, you know, got really excited about the end zone interception. So that cost 15 yards. Yep. Um, so Rams offensively banging their head against the wall with the run game. They did, you know, hit some shots off play action. You saw uh, the, the, the first touchdown was Stafford to OBJ. The second touchdown was to Cooper Cup. Eli Apple bites on play action. Cooper Cup's open in the end zone. So the Bengals' defense generally, I think, had a very good game plan, right? They, they were doing the correct thing in terms of at least forcing them to go to somebody other than Cooper Cup. And, okay, when, it, when, when OBJ was there, it might not have been enough because they had another guy to go to, and OBJ is beating guys like Mike Hilton one-on-one, and that's probably enough for this Rams offense to keep putting up some points and, and put some distance between them. But as soon as that, as soon as that changed and, and OBJ goes down – all of a sudden, the Cincinnati defense, which on paper is like the weakest unit in this game. You know, they were ranked like 20th overall in PFF grade or whatever. They'd been better in money downs, but that was the weakest link of this game, the the Bengals' defense. It was going to hold as soon as OBJ goes down. And all of a sudden, the Bengals get a huge break of a play when T. Higgins mugs Jalen Ramsey and gets a monster touchdown. And now, like, momentum swung their way. This is a totally different can't game. Say, you can't say momentum. Oh, I'm saying it. Totally different game now. It, even, you know, at that point, it's like when OBJ goes down, it, the game felt different. Like, you're going in, the Rams have this in control on the scoreboard, and you're like, this doesn't, like, Cincinnati feels fine. 
Like, this is actually a decent situation for them. Okay, they're down, but the Rams aren't going to be putting up points for the rest of this game in a big way. If the Bengals get something going, they're in business. They get the deep touchdown, um, which was an egregious no-call in a game that was, again, certainly for the first half, they weren't calling anything. Egregious no-call not to flag Higgins for literally grabbing hold of Jalen Ramsey's face mask and, like, tossing him to the side as the ball arrived. And then right off the back of that, they get a Stafford interception off the hand of Skoranek, and boom, totally different ball game. Yeah, and that was, oh man, back-to-back plays, right? It was that's insane. that was the first two plays of the second half. And it's funny as I, we were when we were predicting the game flow of yeah, there's going to be a lot of early runs and all that stuff. And as you watch this game flow, it actually made sense with how the teams had played. At you know times in recent weeks, right? The Rams would get up early. They had been doing this a lot. They their script was good. They had a good game plan. But that, the Bengals, thats what happened to the Bengals against the Chiefs, right? And then they adjusted, and it felt like, okay, this actually makes sense, right? The Rams are good early. Do they have the counter punch? Because the Bengals have shown that they can, you know, do a better job as the game goes on defensively, and you you started to get that. And then you have the seventy-five yarder. And then the, the interception, as you said, it's like, all right, this is the Bengals game. But that was where the, the, the Bengals were – they had three or four drives where they were leading, right? Maybe more. A bunch of drives where they were leading, and they had a chance to make it a two-possession game, and they could not score. The Bengals could not score. And that was where the Rams' defense and the – you know, if you take – can you take away the 75-yarder? Which was fluky. Mm. You take that away. The Bengals have 145 net passing yards on 39 dropbacks. That's 3.7 yards per attempt. This is the underrated part of this game. If T. Higgins doesn't grab Jalen Ramsey by the face mask, throw him out of the way, catch the ball, and then run away from him, 3.7 yards per attempt, that's less than they averaged on the ground, the Bengals. Yeah, I mean... And that's how dominant this Rams defense was. So coming into this game, I can't remember... We talked about this game doing like nothing else for like a week, right? So I, I can't even remember where I was saying this, but I had come to the conclusion before the game that I thought this was going to be a pretty low-scoring, relatively ugly game, and we might end up with like 24-17 or something as the final score. And that's actually what ended up happening. Like the Bengals' offense had spent two weeks trying to figure out how to stop Aaron Donald. And Chris on the broadcast, I thought, was doing a really good job of explaining how they were doing it. Yes. Turning the center in his direction and then the counter that the Rams defense was coming up with to take advantage of the fact that they were trying to do that. And this is why it's not an easy thing to take away Donald because the, the solution to it is what they were doing, which is to try and move the center in his direction every single snap, which changes everything about the blocking scheme on that play. So every single time Donald is lining up on the field, his presence is, is, is altering how you would ordinarily call a play, which is incredible impact to be having whether or, whether or not you're getting pressure on the play. So the, the Bengals had spent two weeks trying to game plan this, and it was working-ish, but it was having that kind of effect, and it was stopping what they were, what they were doing. And then as soon as OBJ goes down, like now the Rams offense isn't going to have production either, and this is this grind of a game. And I think for the second year in a row – the Super Bowl has essentially been determined by one team didn't have a viable offensive line. And that, that's the game. Like, you, you cannot function. And Joe Burrow, he's not going to have a particularly good grade. 
there was a lot of just, you've got no shot. The ball's coming out of his hand incredibly fast. For uh, a big period of the game, it was under two seconds, which is faster than Ben Roethlisberger this season. You know, that, that lightning quick uh, time. It ended up being 2.4 overall, average time to throw. Um, but they just, you, it, there's, there's just such a small margin for error in terms of a functioning passing offense when that is the, 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 real, the reality of what you're dealing with. Like, if this ball is not out in 2.2 seconds, we're dead. I mean, and that was how they were playing against the, the Chiefs, too, right? I mean, the Chiefs, early on, uh, Burrow's getting rid of the ball super fast, super fast. And that's not – he likes to hold – there's a reason why he's taking all the sacks. We've, we've talked about it a million times, right? It is not just the offensive line. When the offensive line, it, they're going to have a pass-blocking grade probably in the 20s. It is – they lost. They lost badly up front. But, again, the conversion of pressure to sacks is – also dependent on the quarterback and the coverage and all that stuff. Burrow likes to hold the ball a little bit longer, and he likes to wait for that uh, deeper play. The Bengals were kind of taken out of their game against the Chiefs. I know they beat the Chiefs, but they were taken out of their game because Burrow was getting rid of the ball so quickly. I was surprised. Were you surprised they didn't run as many screens here? We talked about the screen game. How many did they end up running? I didn't. I didn't. Even, there was. A, we were deep in the game, and I was like, I haven't. I yeah. don't think I've seen a screen. It's interesting because we've had a few of these Super Bowls, right, where like Tom Brady has gone up against the Giants' defensive front. We always talk about the 40% pressure mark and all that stuff. You know how it, many screens they ran the game? One. One. Yeah. I, that, that was amazing to me because one of the things I think they should have done heading into that game to try and neutralize Donald and Von Miller in that pass rush was throw screens in behind them, like dump the ball over those guys' head to Joe Mixon. A, the Rams have not been particularly good against screens, period, this year. B, they're going to be in your face every single play. And C, it might actually have a, a greater than normal success because, like, those guys, it's not going to be unusual to the defensive line to be in Joe Burrow's face in one and a half seconds, right? Yeah. Normally, when you, like, pitch a defensive lineman loose on a screen, they immediately sort of go, hang on, this is not right, something's up, look for the screen. If you're Donald... And you're all of a sudden in Joe Burrow's face in like one and a half seconds. You're not thinking it's weird. It's just right, this that, is what happens. That is familiar territory. Right. So I'm amazed that they weren't using that as a significant part of the offense. And yeah, they ran one screen. And I'm pretty we, sure that was a wide receiver screen. We've said before the, um, the way Tyreek Hill just looks faster than everybody never doesn't amaze me on mm -hmm. the football field. I, I cannot believe how often Aaron Donald just wins quickly. You know, how often yeah. he is just even with the guard less than two seconds into the play? I mean, so it's not going to be his best grade in the world, but given the impact that Donald was having in terms of changing the Bengals' play call every single snap, this was an absolutely phenomenal game to watch from Aaron Donald. He... It's very fitting that the last drive was essentially decided by Aaron Donald, right? <coughs> the Bengals, they, they, Joe Burrow's got the ball with his hands, 90 seconds, more than that, a little bit more than 90 seconds to work. Like, this is your moment. This is your Joe Cool, your Joe Montana drive. This is it. But you're now in a situation where, like, the Rams can pin their ears back. They know what you have to do, and they're coming after you. And that's where all these things, you can neutralize Donald, but at some point he knows what you're doing and you just have to block him, and that's when he becomes unstoppable. And then third and fourth down, Donald makes the play. Third and one, they run. Questionable call, sure, 
but Donald beats his guy one-on-one, stones the running back, and just stops that play dead. Boom. Fourth and one. Donald beats his guy immediately, gets around, is attacking Burrow, and Burrow can't get the ball to his receiver. So Donald makes back-to-back plays where he ends the game. Really fitting. But his, you're watching this game, and that guy's strength is just otherworldly. And remember, this is relative to dudes that are like the strongest, most incredible professional athletes in the world, right? The most impressive play I saw Donald make was stopping Joe Mixon, who is like, Joe Mixon's like 220, right? Um, Joe Mixon weighs, yeah, 220 pounds. He's six foot one, 220 pounds. They're running an outside zone to the left. And Mixon has a head of steam running at a gap that looks pretty good. Donald hits him with one hand. He's, you know, working his way down the line, trying to get around the guard, gets one hand on Joe Mixon and stops him like a brick wall. That's ridiculous. Like you talk, you hear all the time about running back. You can't tackle that guy with an arm. Yeah. That guy, arm tackle. He's going to run right through it. Donald gets one hand on Mixon and stops him instantly. And the only reason he had one hand is because the other hand is taking a 335-pound guard and putting him on roller skates in that direction. Donald is working back across a shade of a guard and is with one hand moving that guy at a rate of knots down the line and with the other hand stops a 220-pound guy like he was, you know, a 17-pound, like, nothing. Like, he, like he was a 7-year-old. Just stopped him dead. That is ridiculous like absolutely mind-blowing I don't know how many other players in the NFL could even hope to make that play but you look at that and you're like this is absolutely unbelievable what we are watching from this guy and if he retires like I'm just it's sad because this is incredible he won't retire he'll come back do you know uh, I didn't realize uh, somebody on Twitter sent me Mitchell Schwartz's uh, screenshot Donald lined up offsides on fourth and one Okay. Mitchell would never alter that or anything. So I mean look, the the officials late in the game. Let's talk in a minute. Didn't have the best performance. Because today's happy Valentine's Day, by the way. Thanks. Rose this is the last time I'm gonna say this. <laughs> so let's just make it good. It's Valentine's Day. Yeah. Uh-huh. Where are you going with that? Uh, Manscaped. I think you could still get the the great deal. Roses are red, violets are blue. Don't yeah. let a wild pube wreck you. It's no. the last time we get to do this. Okay. Valentine's Day is not right around the corner. It's today. Our sponsors are Manscaped are here for you with the best tools to get your balls ready for the special occasion today. <laughs> a little last minute, but mm. uh, you can still make this happen. Valentine's Day, it's the time to join 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped, the leaders in below-the-belt grooming. With our exclusive offer, go to manscaped.com, use the promo code PFF for 20% off plus free shipping. That's it. You, you missed yesterday. You missed National Shave Your Balls Day. That's, uh, that's February 13th. You don't know if I missed it or not. What? It's over. Maybe I was all too aware of National Shave Your Balls Day. And you've already got the, the Performance Package 4.0. They have made the lawnmower absolutely incredible. That's all part of the Performance Package 4.0. That's what you get with your 20% off plus free shipping. Manscaped's created products for days like this. Right here on Valentine's Day. So you get your 20% off free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping. Manscaped.com. Use the promo code PFF. Join Cupid and shoot your arrow with Manscaped this Valentine's Day. All right, what do you want to say? Where were you going? I think I was done, wasn't I? Are we time for the refs? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, just late in the game, the refs had a stinker. 
Yeah, generally. I mean, look, they, I, I hated the fact, uh, listen, I hate the fact when you can go back to three or four massive, massive swings yeah. that are just blatantly bad. And this is for both teams. When I pointed out the T. Higgins thing, I mean, that, that's, also, that's a 75-yard touchdown. Again, outside of that play, the Bengals averaged average 3.7 yards per dropback. And look, that was so obvious. So it, it, it's a really blatant call. That being said, you can kind of see based off where the official is relative to how that fung. You can, you can see how you would miss it live, right? My point about this, though, is that we are in the Super Bowl. We have an unimaginable array of cameras and replays and instant access to seeing very quickly that you screwed that up. And they now have a connection, a direct line between a dude with all those monitors and the main official, right? Yeah. Now, technically, they can't do that because pass interference and all that kind of stuff, it's not a reviewable play. But here's where I think in, in the biggest game in the world with 200 million people watching this thing in the country – they should just get in the guy's ear and say, throw a flag. Just throw it. Throw the flag. You don't even – we can pick it up. Like, it doesn't – you know, you're not bound to this, right? Just put the yellow laundry on the field and give us 30 seconds to talk this through. And if we decide, you know what, that's not egregious enough, we'll just let it go. Fine. We can pick up the flag and say there's no foul in the play, blah, blah, blah. Right? But they now have the ability for a guy to get in that ref's ear immediately and say, just put a yellow flag on the field so we can talk this through. And then, you know, look at the replay and go, dude, you have to. We can't. Like, this is so bad. We can't let the game change on this. And just just fix it quietly, you know? Just just, just sort it out. If the NFL no care. Re- if the NFL really wanted to staff up, they could have an ent- like a second entire ref crew I mean, look, this remote. is... This is watching why the video live. Other feed. sports do this, right? This is rugby's TMO. This is the Sky Judge, right? This is what this guy is there for. But you could have five Sky Judges if you want, right? But too. whatever. Like, let's put aside for a moment the fact that, like, in a you know a proper sport or a decent system, there would be a guy whose job this is generally to just look at that and go, "Guys, you screwed up the call. Buzz, throw a flag. Penalty doesn't count, right?" The NFL doesn't have that, and let's for a minute say that that's fine. And that that's the way it works. But in the biggest game of the year, you still have the ability to kind of fudge it, you know, and say, look, technically, you know, technically speaking, this is not within the rules. But what is the better scenario here that we kind of fudge the system and throw a flag and fix an obviously bad play or we let a Super Bowl and therefore a season hinge on this blown call that we just made in the biggest game of the year. I would be of the opinion that you should fudge that and just throw a damn flag, regardless of how you came to the conclusion that you screwed it up. So the other point that you've made, right? There's something about the strategy, and again, baseball deals with this with, say, umpires, right? You change your game based off what you know is being called and how it's being called. So early in the game, nothing's being called. Yeah, prison the, rules. Again, the, which was the one of the championship games was like that as well, right? Where they ju- it became very clear. Well, this was Bengals-Chiefs, right? They yeah, didn't AFC. know. the Bengal, Part of the Bengals' adjustment. What did they do schematically? Well, they got more physical yeah. with the Chiefs because they knew they could get away with stuff. Right. This often happens in the playoffs. That's the other issue, too, by the way. The fact that refs have different rules for the first 
18 years. I'm kind of okay years. with that. I, I think that that actually makes some sense, right? Let's call this the way it's supposed to be called in the regular season. But the second we get to the postseason, you don't want the officials to be the reason the games are being decided. So let's kind of back off, right? And everybody knows that. And then the, then it's on, the onus is on the teams to find where that line is, right? It's different to where it is in the regular season, so figure it out on the fly. I don't hate that as a thing. But what I do hate is if you're going to do that and you're going to back off and be like, we're not calling this. Come on. It's prison rules coverage. Yeah, okay. We've both, we've both uh, contributed to the uh, baseball versus rugby counter today. That's all right. I'm still, I'm still well in the lead. Um, but if you're going to do that, you have to call it consistently because otherwise you break the game. What they did in this game is they backed off and they were, we're not calling anything. We're going to let them play, hashtag. And then randomly they just spasmed and went, actually, now we're throwing flags for, on anything. So you go the entire game not calling these things, including an egregious no-call on the T. Higgins thing. And then you flag Logan Wilson for perfect coverage just for no reason. Like, this is... It's simply not it's, – it's probably not a penalty in any game, and it certainly isn't a penalty relative to the things you've been letting go in this game. Like, just stop. The Logan Wilson one, the Bengals would have been one play away. Yeah, that was a third winning. down stop. Third down and goal from about the nine, was it? Third and goal, Logan Wilson. It wasn't interference. It wasn't a tug. It wasn't anything, really. It was good coverage. It was. So, look, and by I, the way, on the same play, they missed a blatant false start, like a blatant false start, not even a marginal one, not a, you know, okay, I can see a really bad false start. I thought the hit to the, and then there was the other play on the Rams' final drive. They get a holding penalty, and then there's a, they throw a touchdown. Cooper Cup gets laid out in the end zone. They call that unnecessary roughness. It looked bad. I mean, that's another one where I think the unnecessary roughness, just the worse it looks, the more they call it. I thought that was a clean hit. Wasn't it pretty clean? Maybe I'm not sure. I didn't. I didn't see that hit enough to be to really dive into the. That's the only thing. I'm so mad about the Logan Wilson call. I know. I mean, you're. I just don't want to see. Look, bad, bad calls happen, and if if there's consistency, and you see a lot of NFL players talking about this too. If there's consistency, if you know you can get away with a little tug of the jersey. If you know you can get away with this and that, it alters strategy, it alters how you how you cover, it alters your play calling. Mm. You might call you might call more man coverage because you can get away with stuff. Um, especially with OBJ out. I mean the the Bengals could alter their strategy. We mentioned there was a point early in the second half where the only penalty was Vernon Hargraves jumping on the field. And then the second penalty was Isaiah Prince with a late hit or something. And then it just the flags came out down the stretch. Some of them were legit. Of course, you have to you have to throw flags when there's actual penalties. But the Logan Wilson one. So I, so I think as far as like drastic game-changing penalties, it was pretty close. I mean, you're talking a 75-yard touchdown that the Bengals didn't earn, and you're talking the Rams going from being one play away from losing the Super Bowl to having first and goal. And then they picked up another penalty on a uh, pass interference on Cooper Cup. That was real. I mean, that was fine. He got he got tugged or whatever. So I just don't like when the game gets altered like that. Yeah, and like, I don't like the argument either that it like it evens out, right? You know, big play for the Bengals, big play against the Bengals. Let's call it a wash and move on. I mean, sure, but like, how about neither of those are a problem? Like, 
there's no reason that the officials should be that involved in the game that we are even talking about those plays. They screwed both those up and neither needed to happen. And in particular, the way they were calling that game, it just it altered things and it became a, th- a factor when it shouldn't have been. Yeah. Um, I thought the Bengals, too. So on their game-winning drive, they made some adjustments because they, they were running their wide zone stuff a lot, and that was not going anywhere either outside of a couple runs. They started to run more up the middle, run more duo stuff. I thought they did a really nice job there. Chris kept highlighting Sean Robinson, hmm. um, who's always been – uh, from a run defense standpoint, he's always had the potential and the size and power. He's He's been a little up and down as far as actual performance, but he was good this year. He was excellent in this game, uh, in the run game and all that stuff. But the the Bengals had to run the ball. So just like trying to explain away the Rams running into a brick wall that was the Bengals' run defense, the Bengals had to run the ball because if they don't, Burrow's getting sacked like 20 times, Right. Didn't you have to do that? As much as you want to put the ball in Burrow's hands, you couldn't do that against this Rams pass rush. By the way, Vaughn Miller's going to end up with an incredible grade as well because he was winning up front as often as Donald, if not more. So Bengals, game plan-wise, what else could they have done? Yeah, I, I, the Bengals, they were overmatched. I think they didn't have a, They did a good job on both sides of the ball, in my opinion, from a schematic point of view to to neutralize or overcome where they were overmatched. Like, they they were underdogs in this game for a reason. The Rams are a better team, top to bottom. They have a better regular season record. They, <coughs> they should have won this game. Um, so I think the Bengals did a good job of trying to offset that with what they were calling on both sides of the ball. And they were running the ball, sure, but it wasn't as ineffective as – the Rams offense, and they, they had a much greater incentive to do it because Joe Burrow was about to get killed if they didn't. Burrow was sacked, what, seven times? It looked for a while like, and it may have ended up this way if they'd extended that final drive, but like, he could have had a second game where he won with nine sacks, which has never happened before, you know? It was insane. Like, he was under pressure a ton, and they were, like, mitigating it with the quick passing and all the, and turning everything towards Donald. And Burrow didn't play that badly under pressure. But at some point, like this is the thing we've been talking about for a while. It's just, it's too hard to do that every week. And yeah, they only needed one more game and we saw how close they were to achieving it one last time. But you simply can't perform like that every week. It is too hard to have sustained success in the NFL if you are under that volume of pressure. Burrow had... Uh, 42 dropbacks, including nullified plays, and was under pressure 18 times. Like, it's just, it's too high a percentage. And that, remember, that's offset by a lot of that quick passing. All of the quick passing. And all the things they were doing to take it away. If they had just dropped back and played their normal passing offense, Burrow would have been under pressure like like 55, 60% of the time, which is just dead. It's just not non-viable, completely non-viable. So for them to get that number as low as it was... And to have the kind of success that they did have, even if, you know, 75 yards of it was essentially fake, um, I think is still a good coaching performance from Cincinnati. Yeah, I mean, and, and then a lot of that came, the pressure came in the second half, and it came after the Rams made an adjustment. And, I mean, that was, that was the key to the game. Again, I thought Chris did a really good job laying that out. I didn't give Chris credit last night. I said NBC's doing a really good job with this mm. instead of Chris. 
I thought Chris did a really good job. And Fred and everybody that was involved there. Maybe it was Al. Maybe Al was telling them. Like, as soon Al. as they went to a break, hey, Chris, like, this is what's happening. This might be Al's last Super Bowl. No. Last for NBC, anyway. But, like, Al's not going anywhere. So he's going to get traded for the rabbit again? Back to ESPN? For the rabbit, yeah. What was that? Harvey the rabbit or something? I forget. Apparently he's mad. He doesn't like that story. He doesn't? I don't think so. Oh. I don't think he likes being... I don't think he likes it out there that he got I traded thought it for was a, a rabbit. Cartoon rabbit. I thought it was a fair trade. 11... Wow. Let's see, 11 out of 22 dropbacks in the second half. Joe Burrow got pressured. Yeah. Six sacks. I, it really is. It's like last year where you simply can't perform at this level. And now I think the Bengals have a really hard task to make sure that Joe Burrow doesn't get Dan Marino'd, which is, you know, incredible year two. Dan Marino goes to the Super Bowl, has that 5,000-yard season in 1984, which is yep. just like numbers you can't even fathom at that time. And everyone's like, oh, Dan Marino's going to be in the next 10 Super Bowls, and we're going to see this you know, incredible – Dan Marino never got back. Never. And the dude played a long time and never got to the game again. And Joe Burrow is now in a conference with Justin Herbert and Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen and all these other devastating AFC quarterbacks, and the Bengals overachieved this year. They were not supposed to be where they got to. And that offensive line is a hot steaming pile of garbage. So all of a sudden, said nicely, you need to, they need to do what the Chargers did last year, which is recognize that they overachieved relative to what they, what was supposed to happen, that Burroughs play under pressure was remarkable, but unsustainable. And we, they need to just attack that offensive line, their first round draft pick, free agency, trades, whatever they need to do. There are probably four players on that line that need to be upgraded certainly oh, I think, two or three. I think the Bengals are fully aware that this offseason, look, I, I mean, they made the right move getting Jamar Chase. By the way, that catch that he had on Jalen Ramsey early on was incredible. Yeah. Um, I found it compelling that the Rams, I mean, the Bengals were not afraid of Jalen Ramsey at all. No. They threw the ball deep with Jamar Chase, with T. Higgins. It paid off. They threw to Higgins in the end zone. Um, yeah, people sent me the screenshot of Ramsey with a little jersey tug on Higgins there. He almost had an interception, but um, they weren't afraid of Ramsey either. The other, the key play early on too, fourth and one, that was Jalen Ramsey getting targeted. So remember, the Bengals are near midfield. They go for the fourth and one. Ernest Jones, the linebacker, broke it up. But again, Chris showed he's, he was just running to the flat. They were attacking Ramsey on that play too. Might have had it open. Ernest Jones just tips it away on the way. That was a kind of a big play too because the Rams got the short field. That was one of those right move by a few percentage points to go for the fourth and one. But when you don't get it, I mean, the Rams had a – that was their first yeah. touchdown. I think that was another encouraging sign for their coaching performance, that they were going for those fourth and one calls, um, knowing that they were the underdogs and they had to get plays like that. Have you seen, by the way, the onion sticking the boot in to Cincinnati? No, what'd they say? The Onion. Uh, Cincinnati residents take solace after loss in cities. Lack of culture, terrible food, stupid name, boring downtown. Uh, quote, Man. who cares about a little trophy when you've got high crime, zero distinctive features, mediocre walkability, says citizens. Harsh. Wow. Harsh for The Onion. I mean, the biggest winner here is CJ Azama, who does not have to take a Skyline chili bath. I mean, I, the, when that came up, my initial thought was, I mean, better that than eating it. Hmm. Better that than mayo, too? I, I would rather bathe in a vat of Skyline chili than eat Skyline chili. 
man, my kids are becoming Cincinnatians because they, uh, we had to take them there before. My three-year-old had his birthday last week, and he wanted to go to... Eric was saying Skyline. his daughter, for her birthday, asked for Skyline. Yeah, my kids are, like, they do Skyline chants now. Because <laughs> yeah. they, they like that pile of orange cheese on their spaghetti. God. That's what they get. Okay. So uh, I have to take them to Skyline every now and again. Huh. My three-year-old's pretty simple, though. All he wanted was a, was a party-sized bag of Cool Ranch Doritos. It's great. Yeah. Gifts for three-year-olds, solid. Here's a bag of chips, kid. Blue chips, as he called. He loves them. Fair enough. You guys want to sponsor the show? Doritos? Cool Ranch? Get my three-year-old over there. All right, I just want to talk about the end of the game really quick, the sequence, right? The Rams get the ball with 6.13 left. They take it down all the way to score it with 1.29 left. That's the game-winning touchdown. Yes, there's a lot of drama with the third and eight holding, the third and goal holding from the eight, but Stafford to Cup, man, has just been unstoppable. Cooper Cup now... I mean, really one of the best seasons of all time. He did it all. And then in crunch time, he just kept converting first downs. And he was the guy that they went to. I I I haven't listened to a lot of the post-game interviews and stuff, but I would love to hear an answer to who made the call to essentially go, you know what, screw it. Start throwing the ball at Cup again. Like, start – I don't – Every target that goes in the way of goes in the direction of Skoranek is like a wasted play, right? If you do that again, I'm cutting you right now. Um, Van Jefferson isn't the guy that's going to make these plays. I know that they're bracketing Cooper Cup. I know they're trying to take him away. Who cares? Force it to him. Figure out, like, just give him a shot because that's the only way we're winning this game. And that last drive, they just went to hell with it. We're going down swinging with the thing that's worked so far. I don't care if they're double covering. We are just fitting the ball into Cooper Cup. And if that costs us the game, fine. It was worth it. But we trust him making these plays. And that was where Stafford had probably the play of the game, certainly the pass of the game, I think, where he hit that that pass to Cooper Cup in an incredibly tight window. Yeah. Um, and not just that, but it was a classic sort of look-off play from Stafford where – He's got a guy uh, running the simple hook route underneath, and he, he opens up the whole way. Like, he's aiming at that tight end, I think, yeah. underneath the hook route, and then whips the body back and sort of throws the ball further left. And he's aiming, which 100% manipulates the safety, Von Bell, who realizes too late that, uh-oh, the ball's not going there. It's coming back over my head this way. Just an incredible pass. Incredible play by Matthew Stafford. Literally, as I said at the start, the difference between him and Jared Goff and the play that kind of got that drive motoring into Cincinnati territory and gave them the chance to set this thing up and score and take the lead. Yeah, they were Stafford to cup, man. I mean, if you go back through this whole playoff run, I mean, it was Stafford to cup, two big plays against the Bucks in the divisional round in a tie game late, including the zero blitz, put it up, cup goes goes and gets it. It was Stafford a cup on multiple third downs against the 49ers. It was they were unstoppable, man, and they it was it was the right move to finally to finally go that route. So the so the Rams score what eventually becomes the game-winning touchdown. Joe Burrow's got one last chance here with the Bengals. They got a 17-yarder. Man, Jalen Ramsey gives up a 17-yarder on the first play too. He I don't know what he was he was trying to jump it. He was trying to make that game-ending interception. Was out of position. So 17-yarder. Gets the Bengals to their own 42. This is plenty of time. 
to get yeah. uh, Evan McPherson into field goal range, right? By the way, the other thing that loomed large that my mom reminded me of this morning on the drive-in, but Rams missed an extra point. Mm. Because the Rams missed an extra point, the Bengals had a chance for a game-tying field goal here instead of so, needing a touchdown. Yes, there's two, there's two parts of this. One, because they missed the point, the Bengals could have tied it up with a field goal. The other thing I think that's actually really interesting is because they missed the extra point, the Rams had to go for a touchdown not a field goal themselves. True. So in a weird way, the fact that they missed the extra point actually made them more aggressive on that final drive, which maybe caused them to start forcing the ball to Cooper Cup and doing some of the things they've done. It would have been really interesting if they had that extra point in the bag and they knew that actually all they needed was a field goal. Would they have been as aggressive in forcing the ball to Cup on that final drive as they actually were? Or did the fact that it was four points change them enough? Because that's been one of those you know, discussion points about the extra point, the two points, and all this kind of stuff. Is sometimes when it's four versus three, the offense gets more aggressive, and because of that, more, more effective and more efficient when they know that they have to get the touchdown, not the field goal. So I'm kind of fascinated by that, by that you know, potential what if that if they had only had three, would they have been as aggressive in force-feeding the ball in the way that worked, right? The only thing that got them that final drive was they just went, screw it. Stafford to Cup. That's what got us here. That's what we're going to win with. Including a fourth and one from their own 30. So remember the Rams. Which was a cup, another cup play. It was a cup end around. Really smart. Like gave if they're the down ball. three, though, do they punt that and say, ah, right. you know, getting into field goal range not that tough? Gave him the ball on that jet motion, and Cup just – Cup is so good. Like that guy yeah. has a sixth sense about when to turn it upfield, when to maximize the yardage that's there. Just I think that was a really good play call. But, yeah, that's one of the great unknowns is if they have that extra point in the bag, does it change the way they play at the end of the game in a way that's actually detrimental to them winning? So Burrow looks like, all right, I'm going to get rid of the ball quickly. I've been under pressure on half my dropbacks here in the second half. They're at the 42. Nine-yard pass to the Rams, 49. Now we're now in Rams territory. You're about 10 to 15 yards away from a legitimate, you know, field goal attempt. Indoors, all that stuff. Third and ones, that P. Ryan play that you mentioned with Donald, right? Uh, well, well, this is – they stuffed him on third and one. Donald and Greg Gaines get in there. The, the Bengals had one timeout left, right, at that point. Was that the right move to run on third and one? I mean, probably not. But With if they 48 seconds it, left, one timeout. Yeah, like people were hating on that call. And it's, but if they convert it, does anybody care? Like if they pick it up. Right? No, I mean, it's a great play by the Rams. Yes. Because they were, it was a spread. To, it was spread. The Rams had to win up front. They did. My whole thing with that, so second and second and one was kind of a wasted play. Burrow just throws it up to Chase, lands out of bounds. So actually, and it was a yeah, miscommunication. My bigger problem, I think, was that second down call. And second and one is generally one of those shot play down and distance scenarios for the NFL. But this is different from you know a regular drive in a regular game. Sometimes this is the di- like this is one of those things that changes when you're dealing with 90 seconds to score that you don't have the luxury of just tossing away a play for mm-hmm. the hell of it. And that random, hey, there's a look, there's a free kind of play because it's second and one, you don't have that luxury anymore. You just need to pick up eight yards and figure, you know you know what I mean? Find just another routine play that gets you a first down and a little chunk of yardage and moves you closer. You, you, 
I just that felt like a throwaway play to me and a waste. And it put them in that hole where now you need to pick up that third and one. And they went with the run at the middle. And like, yeah, look, I, 48 seconds left. They have the timeout. I don't love it. But if they pick it up, it's now first down again at the 50-yard line-ish with time on the clock. I, it's fine. But, and, it, I, and it should have worked. If it should have worked, right. and stuff, yeah. It's just that Donald is a freak show. Donald beat his guy, right. not just beat him, but then stoned the running back and didn't get any yards after contact. My only criticism with it, I get there is a comfort level of like, let's just get the first down, then we got four downs to work with to get 10 yards, 15 yards, to get into field goal range or more. I get that. There's a comfort level there. I also think the defense is in a bind on second and one, third and one, right? Because they don't want you to get a chunk play. And they also don't want to convert, but they're they're probably more willing to concede an underneath pass for four yards to get the first down, right? So you have a chance to face probably softer coverage, pick up more than just the one yard that you need, get your new set of downs. But there's also a chance you might you know hit a seam route or something up. The, you know you might be able to break a big play uh, on third and one, and then fourth and one, Donald's in the backfield in what 1.5 seconds, and Barber didn't have a chance, and then the game's over, and that was it. But it was it was just domination up front, and we haven't we didn't even mention Joe Burrow's knee injury. Gets rolled up on Stafford gets rolled up on with his ankle. Burrow gets rolled up on. Um, but I do think at the end of the day, we're going to look at the pass blocking grades and the pass rushing grades, and say and what everybody was talking about leading up to this was the Bengals probably can't block the Rams. And by the way, it's not just the Bengals. I mean, the the Niners are like the only team because of their scheme that has done like a pretty good job against the Rams pass rush. The Rams pass rush dominated this and they, they yeah. dominated the Bucks and the Cardinals and everybody their along the way. Their defense for the playoffs was incredible. It was. Um, but this was so all the things that you can do to try and take away Donald and Von Miller, who by the way was also phenomenal, uh, particularly yeah. late on. All the things you can do to try and slow those down, they kind of go out the window when you are in this situation. When all of a sudden you get to that, all right, we need to drive. We've got 90 plus seconds to work they know what you're doing (laughs) there's no disguise anymore right there's no oh what if they run a screen you know what i mean we're just like this is the situation and now you actually have to just block this guy straight up and deal with it and that's when as soon as anytime donald got a one-on-one opportunity in this game he won immediately like almost instantly and there's nothing the Bengals could do they simply were not capable of blocking aaron donald honestly they were only able to do it by giving him help and by, you know, tilting the playing field in their direction. As soon as you get in that drive at the end of the game, your capacity to do that is eliminated. You simply have to win honestly, straight up, one-on-one, and that you couldn't do that. He was better than you. And that, I mean, in a weird way, it makes the result the right thing, right? <laughs> Where just you simply were not capable of blocking that guy. And that, that's how, this is how that goes when that when that's the situation by the way the one other thing that was amazing is so donald beats this guy he's round he's he's wrenching joe burrow to the ground joe burrow sort of heaves the ball just gets rid of it that was freakishly close to being complete. i thought it was going to get caught i thought it was going to be the you know like an eli right. incredible play like helmet catch deal yeah that was incredibly close to being caught and continuing that drive <laughs> i'm not even going to read this comment about Skyline Chili. Okay. From the YouTube chat. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> anyway, congrats to the Rams. We'll be talking about their strategy. Who's going to re, you know, 
Who's going to replicate it? Are they going to be able to run it back? Are people actually retiring? Um, hopefully not. You know, keep it going. And then the Bengals will spend the whole offseason talking about right tackles and right guard and left guard and center and the whole thing. Join Jonah Williams, creep back to an average up front Bengals offensive line. Man, there's a lot that happened in this game. When you break down one game for an hour and a half, you get a lot. Mm. Uh, anything else that stood out that we missed? I mean, Joe Mixon threw a touchdown. Cooper Cup, the one bad thing he did, he did was overthrow Stafford on the Philly special. Somebody brought up, uh, I wonder if that pl- that play was supposed to be OBJ, like in practice, because mm. OBJ can throw, like really throw. He throws. He's a lefty, right? OBJ? So you have to flip it. I think uh, he's a lefty. I don't know. But he can throw. I wonder yeah. if that was a play call that during the week had OBJ running it and they just went with it anyway. Even if it was... How is the Philly special just always open? Because it's a really hard play to cover. It's always open. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's getting overused now, and then I'm watching, I'm like, oh, it's always open. Might as well. I mean, I wouldn't throw it to Brady or anything. Like, it's not like you're trying to get Brady in space, but, <laughs> you know, if you have a mobile quarterback, run, run that thing uh, five yeah. times a year. I mean, it's certainly not a bad one for, you know, if you've got a key third down somewhere. Like, it's, it's going to be open. The big, the big variable is do you have a dude that can throw it 10 yards that can hit the quarterback? Well, that's the thing. Even if it's open, you need a well, receiver why, to throw I, it and a QB to catch yeah, it. Yeah, I don't know you want to run it on fourth down too much because you don't have an option if you screw it up. But on third down, like, it's guaranteed open. And if, if the guy screws it up, you still have another shot. So it was, um, it was a quirky football game. But it was entertaining. Again, I mean, the last, what, seven NFL games were all pretty intense. Yeah. Came down to the wire. They almost all were three-point def- – there was only one game since the divisional round that wasn't a three-point margin of victory, right? There was a six-point game somewhere based off the overtime score. Chiefs. Chiefs beat the Bills by six. Yeah. Yeah. Because of, the, of the score. Right. Um Every every like remember that the wild card round was a bunch of crappy games and blowouts and it was like eh. and then from that moment on the playoffs have been absolutely incredible. The last seven were awesome. So uh, hopefully hopefully we hit everything because uh, there was a lot that happened in the Super Bowl. Feels we feel rushed. I feel a little rushed here. Yeah, yeah we've only talked about it for an hour and a half. Let <laughs> me stop coughing. Things. All right, um, I want to get into some QB carousel stuff because we've got uh, the Kyler Murray drama. What does it mean, Sam? Did JJ Watt really put that video out yesterday too? About Kyler? Was that real? He said, what does it mean? Called Kyler. He didn't answer. Maybe I, he's just out. Maybe. I think I, he did. I don't know. I, <laughs> Whatever. Um, Kyler Murray has unfollowed and uh, scrubbed, as they say, scrubbed his Instagram yeah. of anything Cardinals related. Mm. So, as a Zennial, what does it mean? Well, then the Cardinals, so it gets more complicated than that, because then the Cardinals did the same thing, except what they kept was two pictures of Kyler. What did they scrub? What else did they scrub? Like everything else. The rest of his Kyler pictures. The rest of everything, I think. Hmm. And then we so were think about with... think about how organizations work, right? Steve Keim, the general manager, Cliff Kingsbury, the head coach. I don't know if you know this or not, but they are not running the Instagram account, hmm. right? I mean, they're not. I mean, you don't know. They they're probably not logging in. Maybe some teams that they save a little money on a social media director and let the head coach and GM run the account themselves they're probably not running the instagram account which means either the social media director went rogue and said okay kyler this is the only way we can uh fight back here we're gonna we're gonna scrub our kyler stuff without consent feels unlikely feels unlikely or 
somewhere from the top or some sort of communication happened. How do we handle this? How do we handle the Kyler Murray situation here? Kyler has scrubbed us clean on Instagram. What's our rebuttal on Instagram? Mm-hmm. And the Cardinals made the tactical decision to, uh, to come back with that. But then, then it, get, it got complicated because Chris Mortensen had a report, uh, right. a couple of tweets where he said, the odd vibe between the Cardinals and Kyler Murray is indeed alarming. Murray is described as self-centered, immature, and, f- and finger-pointer, uh, per sources. Murray is frustrated with the franchise and was embarrassed by playoff loss to the Rams and thinks he's been framed as the scapegoat. Where is it headed? Despite the acrimony the Cardinals expect to calm things down, and Murray is their quarterback. Select veterans hope to reach Murray on how he handled adversity better. Uh, Coach Cliff Kingsbury is also self-scouting where he can provide better alternatives for the quarterback. So, because the Murray thing is interesting from his point, because as soon as it happened, everyone's like, oh, Murray's got options. He can go to baseball. Like, Murray, you know, this is different to everybody else. He was a high draft pick in as baseball. As soon as the Instagram stuff happened? Yeah. Or the playoff loss? The Instagram yeah. stuff. So it's like Murray has leverage unlike anybody else. He can just walk away from this thing and go right, out, right off to, to the, wherever the hell he dropped, the A's. Good job. Thanks. Hit the tally. You um, cannot add to my baseball talk. That's I, not fair. I just did. I watched Watch rugby me. last week. Yeah? I watched uh, Ireland beat Wales. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they just dominated from start to finish. Yeah, they lost to France this week, though. It was a, it was a rough game. Late turnover, though. Yeah, I mean, did they turn it over against France the same way they did against Wales late? Uh, not the same way, but they, they, were, they were turnovers. Yeah, it was a sign of things to come. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, so the Murray thing was kind of like, you know, he can go somewhere else. Like, as a, as a baseball aficionado... I'm aware of the fact that he can't simply walk into the starting lineup of the A's. Yeah. He's going to have to pay his dues in the crappy minor leagues where he's not getting paid a lot of money. Right. Right. So I don't think that's the kind of leverage that people are saying it is, right? Like, yeah, I can leave and go toil in the minors. I could go to high A in the California League. Yeah. Particularly when he hasn't gotten, okay, he's a first overall pick, so the guy's got plenty of cash. But, like, he hasn't had the monster payday yet. You know what I mean? So I don't think that's going to happen, at which point I would imagine he's probably angling for, like, the earliest of those big paydays, right? I, I'm great. I'm your starting quarterback. We made the playoffs this year. Give me my contract. That's what it boils down to to me. Now, the Mort report makes it interesting where it's like, <laughs> essentially that report is Kyler Murray's an asshole. And, you know, now the, now the Cardinals have to decide how to piece this thing together and keep going. But uh, I mean, there's no middle ground with this, too. It's like he's going to make $40 million probably. At least. He's a $40 million quarterback. He's going to be a $40 million guy, or you're going to get rid of him. There's no middle ground. Yeah. And I don't uh, – do you want to live in that world where you – you know, because Kyler's a – again, now that Brady's retired and guys are getting older and all that stuff, Kyler's top 10. I mean – With top 8 potential, as we expected. The, the interesting thing to me is if the Mort report – is 100% accurate. And who the hell knows if it is, right? That could be a guy on Arizona staff that's, like, trying to get the PR message out from their point of view, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, hey, maybe Kyler is just trying to get himself his monster payday. Let's put out some information that makes it seem like he's the asshole, not us. So who knows? If it's 100% accurate, that makes it a really interesting decision because – he is really good, and he had a great season, and he looks like a guy that could be special. But what if he is an asshole? 
Like, what if he is self-centered, immature, and a finger pointer, and every time they lose, he's going to be like, look at these jackass. Like, this is, you guys screwed up. I was fine. You've embarrassed me. I'm fed up with this. I'm going to go sulk for a while. Is that really the guy that you want to hand $45 million a year to and have, like, the linchpin of your franchise? Like, Josh Allen's not doing that, and Lamar Jackson's not doing that, and Tom Brady doesn't do that. And, you know, this is not really the way the leader of the franchise acts if it's true. Do you think it's true? I have no idea. I, I have no earthly idea. I, I really I, I detest quotes from random sources. Yeah, this is how the world works now. I know. It's, it's quotes from random sources. I mean, if you got a quote from one of the people that works from PFF, <laughs> who the heck knows what they're going to say? Yeah. Because it depends on your, your job title, I mean, you don't your know, position of power, you don't your know. previous experience, your boss. I mean, it really depends on a million things. You don't know if it's accurate, if it's uh, motivated by something else. You have n- we have no idea. And it could, and it honestly, it could be one incident from Kyler Murray's like rookie year that he's grown from, and all of a sudden he's not that person, and sure. people still, you know, think he is. Or it could be absolutely true, and it could be calculated, as you said. You said, I mean, you said it could be PR, like direct PR, like, oh, you, you think you have the leverage? Well, actually, we don't love you as much as you thought, right? So um, I, did, uh, I did hear somebody mention recently for and a former NFL executive was saying it is the, player, the, this, the players are realizing that they do have more power. Yeah. And, and the power here is, as I said, Kyler Murray is a $40 million a year quarterback. And does it really matter to him if it's the Cardinals or another team that's going to pay him $40 million? Because for, if, if he has worn out his welcome in Arizona – well, there's at least 15 to 20 teams that would welcome him with open arms, hand over the check, and say, okay, now I don't have to deal with scouting this year's draft class. Now I don't have to deal with Ryan Fitzpatrick as a bridge quarterback or whatever. You know, I don't have to deal with that anymore. I am more than willing to do that. And then the Cardinals have to start over. It, it just becomes really interesting because usually the quarterback discussion is simply like, is this guy good enough or can he elevate the play of people around him to be worth this deal? I What's who's the last quarterback where the discussion was actually more? This guy's obviously amazing, but is he just too much of a pain in the ass to hitch your wagon to? Can you remember like, who's the last guy? Who's a who's a guy that was? I, I don't even want to like. I don't even want to go this route because it's the first time we've heard any of this stuff. Right, and but it's that's a random source. But that's the Kyler. hypothetical, right? If this report is true, and again, who knows? Might be, might not be. But if it's true. That presents a very rare decision for Arizona. And as I say, I can't think of the last quarterback where that was even a factor. Like yeah, who was know. the last guy where there wasn't a question about whether he was good enough to get that deal? The question was, is he too much of a pain in the ass to make it worth it? Aaron Rodgers? I don't know. But even Rodgers was never – like, Rodgers, it was always – You just have a bunch of teammates that – coming out later that yeah, yeah, really but, love so him. So Rodgers, it was always, he's definitely worth it, but he might be a pain in the ass as well, right? Who was the last guy where there was an actual question about, is it worth giving him this deal because he's so much of a, a douche? <laughs> Somebody brought Jake Cutler up in the chat. I'm trying to think. Because Jake Cutler wasn't necessarily worth it. He was the middle, he was, yeah. he was Stafford light. You know, people were chasing, thinking he was going to be Stafford. 17 offensive coordinators were going to fix him. Yeah, I don't know. It is, it's a tough one because, again, 
what's the alternative if you're the Cardinals? You, you start over at the quarterback position. Um, a lot of people like to oh, – well, I, I see a lot of former players like, why don't fans care about the players and them getting their money and, and this and that? And it's an easy answer. Like people care about their team. Like they're fine with the players getting paid. But fans care about their team, right? They're dedicated to their team. They're fanatics of their team. Yeah. So that's what the discussion is going to be over and here. Unlike, Kyler Murray is trying to do what's best for him, but Cardinals fans want what's best for the Cardinals, which includes Kyler Murray being a part of that probably. Right, and unlike other sports, they often work against each other. Like in a sport that doesn't have a salary cap, those two things are not mutually exclusive, right? The star player can get whatever sum of money he wants, and it doesn't affect anybody else, at least not in terms of, like there's not a finite sum of money. The finite sum of money is simply how rich the club owner is. So yeah. soccer, right? Like right now, Liverpool and Mo Salah are in a contract standoff. Mo Salah is arguably the best player in the world right now. He wants a giant sum of money. Him getting that money doesn't directly affect anybody else on that team, right? He can get it, and there's still money available to pay anybody else that wants a contract, right? The only way it affects them is if, like, FSG is simply, we have this finite sum of cash, and if he gets this amount, there's just not enough left for everybody else. Right. But in the NFL, there's a hard cap attached to it. So if we give Kyler this, that the cap didn't move, so there is literally less money for everybody else. Like That's just the way this works. So in a very real sense, the dynamic between the individual player in the NFL, in football, and the team, the collective, is very different than it is in other sports, which changes how fans react to that player. So a guy wanting to get his money is very different than it is in another sport. Like, there's not a soul in the world that believes that Liverpool shouldn't pay Mo Salah the contract that he deserves right now, except maybe Liverpool. Um, But there probably is a chunk of Cardinals fans that are like, nope. He's not worth that. We don't. We, we need the money for everything else. Yeah, I mean, I was I was just trying to defend fans in general. Like they're not anti-play because more of this is going to come up. Players are are using their leverage, which is great, which is fine. They'll get paid. They'll be in better situations, whatever. But fans care about their team more than the players. That's just the that's the bottom line. Okay, so the Kyler Murray analysis is we have no idea what the Instagram stuff means because we're both too old and we don't know if he's an asshole or not. I mean, I know it means he's upset about something. Okay. You have to actively do that to prove a point. And the point is I'm upset right. about something. What I don't know, what I don't know is the seriousness of scrubbing Instagram. Like, is this, are, are you one Insta DM away from getting it back on track? Like, does Steve Kime jump in to the Cardinals Insta DM mentions, talk to Kyler, say, look, man, let's, let's reconcile. Let's bring this back together. We're going to pay you. Hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, Kyler's like, QB1, Arizona Cardinals. There's also a chunk of people who think this is like a prelude to like a uniform unveiling or like an NFT or something, you know, like something ridiculous. Oh, it could be an NFT. Anything can be an NFT these days. Yeah. Yeah. If you think about it. We interviewed, uh, I don't think this, it certainly didn't make it on the podcast. I don't think it made it anywhere either. I might actually put it out. Do you have some stored up interviews anywhere that are going to? We interviewed Chuck Liddell at the the Super Bowl. Um, Chuck Liddell, who apparently has pivoted from cage fighting to NFT research. Naturally, yeah. (laughs) And we were like, we need to ask Chuck about NFTs. Because Chuck (laughs) explaining NFTs to us live on a a video would be amazing. Gold, yeah. Uh, He didn't. 
he didn't seem to have a tremendous grasp about NFTs, you know? We were like, can you explain it to us? Because we don't know anything about him. He was like, I mean, not really. I, I, I understand them, but I'd have to get a guy. Okay, fair enough. So he's throwing his money at somebody who knows say, NFTs. Yes. I'm just saying that maybe this is Arizona, you know, unveiling a line of Kyler Murray NFTs. No. Who that's, knows? That's a good theory. Uh, we'll see what happens, though. But uh, look, the QB carousel this offseason, it's already potentially crazy. If you add Kyler into the mix, even crazier. Reports out for Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz. Either released or traded. Uh, did not go well in Indianapolis. What are the Colts' alternatives if they eat his salary and move on? Well, so those are two very different scenarios. If they can manage to trade him after what just happened, I would consider that a resounding success if I was the Colts. Okay, you're still in the situation where you don't have a quarterback. On the other hand, you've managed to recoup some or all of what you traded to get him in the first place. And frankly, given the sunk cost, that's a massive achievement. If you just have to eat it and get rid of him and have set fire to the first-round draft pick, that's pretty catastrophic. Because <sighs> you're still back in the situation of, let me hey, defend, no Let me defend the Colts for a minute, right? Because it is a big if if they could trade him. If a year ago at this time the Colts miss out on Matthew Stafford, who has been better than Carson Wentz in recent years. So we're not, this isn't revisionist history, that Stafford would, would be more coveted than Wentz, right? You took a shot, right? I don't, I don't want to hate the process when you take a shot when you need to. Because the alternative for the Colts was what? They didn't have many other great options. Yeah, I don't, I don't hate the move. I think the move was fine. <clears throat> they, they were but staring. They, but I just want to, really quick, you make the trade for Wentz. It looks rich. It is. But is it worth making the move a year later? Carson Wentz doesn't look that good, whatever. But you could still leverage. There's still 31 other teams out there. At least 10 of them would want Carson Wentz. Even after last season, a disaster, what looked like a disastrous finish for Wentz and the Colts. How many teams would love to have Carson Wentz? Do you have enough leverage still to flip them? And maybe you lose draft capital in the end. But that's the price of taking the risk of Carson Wentz and Frank Reich and, and all that stuff. Is there still enough left there that you could recoup a little bit and the, and the totality of the move isn't that bad? Because maybe Washington would love Wentz or Carolina or whoever, Pittsburgh, whoever is desperate at quarterback, right? This is the nature of today's NFL. The old right, one man's treasure, treasure is another man's trash type of thing, right? Now, is, that, is that the line I was looking for the last show? Mm-hmm. Um, right? Somebody in the NFL, like 15 teams would love Derek Carr, while the Raiders might be mulling over their future with Derek Carr, right? I mean, there's so much of that. Do you just keep taking these chances, even if they don't, you know, until you eventually get your guy? And, and ultimately it's not, because the Colts are getting trashed for this move. And I don't think it's a trash move if they trade him and all that stuff. I think it's decent business given the alternatives. It's not ideal. And this is why I don't want to work for a team. I kind of want to work for a team, but I don't. Like, you're just stuck with one guy. You can make a million good moves, but if you miss the one move, you're done. Yeah, the problem is it's it's a results-oriented business, and it's a sequence of high leverage, no backup decisions 
So the Colts, I don't hate the risk that they took to grab Carson Wentz. When you look at what they were, the landscape that they were staring down the barrel of when they made that move, which is, you know, Stafford is gone. He's out of the equation. Um, the other possible candidates throughout the offseason, you know, the, there were rumors at this point swirling around uh, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, Aaron Rodgers. Watson obviously wasn't going to happen, one, because the dude's under a barrage of legal warrants, two, because the Texans are in the division, they're not trading him. And the Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers thing, we didn't know at that point if that was going to happen, and it turned out it didn't. So if you're the Colts and you're exploring these options, you're looking at this and you're saying, well, Stafford's gone, Watson's not happening, if we don't get Rodgers or Wilson, where are we? And at that point, you would be screwed. You had nothing, all right? So they, they go, okay, let's say we're not getting those two guys. Let's make a move for the one guy we do have an option for with familiarity with Frank Reich, a guy that could potentially be pieced back together and become a good quarterback. They take the gamble. They grab Wentz. For a while, it looked like it was working out. And then Wentz kind of went back in the tank a little bit late in the year, and you miss the playoffs. So it was kind of worst possible scenario for the Colts in terms of he played just well enough for them to be in contention and should have made the playoffs, and then just badly enough that they didn't, and it cost them a first-round draft pick. Um, So I don't hate the process of going for it, but the problem is it didn't work. (coughs) And now you're in this situation where you're you're staring down the same barrel of we don't have a quarterback and there aren't any great options, and we just burned a year and a first-round draft pick to find that out. So... I don't think there. I don't think you should crap all over the decision-making structure and be like those guys are idiots. This is a move that should get everybody fired, but it doesn't change the reality that they're in real trouble because of that decision. Right. And I think, I mean, they certainly realize they're not going to roll with him again, right? I mean, we we heard it coming out of the press conferences. They just they need to address it. So from a Colts perspective, what does addressing that look like? Is it? If they, if they fail to get another big name there because they don't have a first-round pick to do that, is it like drafting Carson Strong in the second round or something? You know, what, what's the alternative? Is it the Marcus Mariota strategy? We, we said the Colts could be the team. We said this last year at this time. They could be the team that goes one-year contract QBs. Yeah. Right? Phillip Rivers, they did it. They, I mean, they got Carson Wentz for a year. Obviously, it wasn't a one-year deal, but are they the Marcus Mariota team? Are they the Jameis Winston team in Indianapolis? Um those are just as risky, right? As as Carson. I mean, they're not just as risky. They're cheaper, but you're getting a similar caliber quarterback as Carson Wentz. So um, again, I don't envy. I don't envy the teams that don't have a quarterback because of it's just not clear cut. I mean, there's already rumors that the the Vikings are ready to re up Kirk Cousins because I mean. Did they look at the landscape and say, well, we're not going to find better than Kirk Cousins. For all his limitations, we're not going to find better than him. The Raiders probably feel pretty good about Derek Carr. I keep using Carr. But those are the guys that are in this middle class of quarterback. And by the way, there's a pretty healthy debate about, or at least coming into the season, who's better, Derek Carr, Matthew Stafford, Kirk Cousins. They're, still, they're all in the same bucket. Stafford had, a, had an excellent season. He is not magically a top-five quarterback in today's NFL. He's, Kirk Cousins has a better grade for the year. I know. I, he does, but I, st- I still trust Stafford in must-pass situations. There's, there's a lot of things that 
probably separate Stafford from Cousins. And sure, like, but like they one of do. the things that like blew people's minds in the offseason was like, hey, on the quiet, Kirk Cousins has been a better quarterback than Stafford in the last several years. Sure. Stafford had a career year this year, won a Super Bowl, came up clutch, all those kinds of things. Cousins still had a better grade. Like that as much there are going to be people now they're like this you know Stafford is a hall of famer this is night and day he's one of the greatest quarterbacks ever Kirk Cousins is just a guy there still isn't much of a difference between the two yeah so that's all I'm saying. Like, again Stafford's not magically a top 5 quarterback I don't think and today like, just go list out all the quarterbacks he's close because of you know retirements and regression and all that stuff guys getting older he's close but he's Stafford's still a middle, upper middle tier quarterback of his generation. That's where Cousins is. That's where Carr is. Wentz is probably lower middle tier, right? I mean, there's not, there's a lot separating those guys, but also not a lot all at the same time, and it makes for some tricky decision making for teams. So that's what we'll spend these next few months breaking down. Any other crazy stuff that can happen on the carousel here from quarterbacks? Um, I mean, the Rodgers thing is still. Up in the air, right? Does he retire? Does it, what does Rodgers do? The Russell Wilson thing still hasn't gone anywhere. Is he really going to agitate for a move out of Seattle? You know, all those kinds of things. So I think those two, I mean, the, the three quarterbacks from a year ago with the biggest questions on them, Rodgers, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, for different reasons, are all still the same. Like, all we did is punt those conversations for a year. I have a feeling Russ is back in Seattle. Rodgers goes back to Green Bay. I mean, Rodgers to Green Bay makes sense, right? They're winning. They're a capable team. They'll be in the championship game or thereabouts every year as long as he's there and they have a half-decent team around him. The Russell Wilson thing, I think, is more interesting because if he was pissed off a year ago, which I think he probably was, right? Now, Russell Wilson is one of the, like, like – <laughs> You know, we've seen him on TV in the Manning cast. He's a bland individual, right? The man is not bringing a lot of controversy and, like, hype takes to the, you know, yeah. Mr. whatever he is. Mr. What was his thing? Unlimited. There you go. Mr. Unlimited. Like, he's just, he's just a, like, he's a caricature. He's like a cartoon, you know, just the, the man is born without a personality, or at least one that is displayed to the public. So you're not going to get him coming out and, you know, really agitating for this mood and, you know, being an ass about it and forcing his way out. You're going to get him, like, suffering through five years of this and then going on Dan Patrick and, like, meekly voicing that I'd quite like to have some slightly better pass protection, please, sir. You know, that's what you're going to get. And he did that a year ago, and they didn't really do anything to fix it, right? They bring in Gabe Jackson, and it's like, all right, there's your there's your olive branch, Russ. Now let's get back in the job and let's go. Let's let's try and carry this thing all by yourself again. So the Gabe Jackson thing didn't work. Russ got hurt for the first time in his career. The you Seahawks. thought the Gabe Jackson thing was great. You thought that was like that's perfect. Play I think Gabe. it appeased him. Yeah, but it didn't fix anything. No, of course, um, not. Russ got hurt for the first time. The Seahawks suck. They have they've deteriorated. If you're Russell Wilson and you had reached the point last year where after this amount of time you've been like, I need to say something. I'm going to go on Dan Patrick and I'm going to, you know, really quietly say that I might like some protection. Uh, If that was the situation a year ago, he's not any less 
unhappy this time around. So at some point, that has to reach a, a point where he's just like, to hell with this. I have leverage. I can get the hell out of here. I can go to a different team where I won't be so badly put upon as I am here. So I don't know if he has it in him to like to be that obstinate and just screw this. Yeah. But if he does, we've got to be reaching that tipping point soon. Are the are the Seahawks ready to move on? Because my only issue is Pete Carroll's still there. He's old. Yes. Right. And if Pete, like, I, I would imagine, you know, Pete Carroll takes a lot of crap in terms of what he does or doesn't know or is or isn't aware of by the way the modern NFL works. But I would imagine Pete is very acutely aware that, like, you take Russell Wilson out of this team, we are nothing. Yeah. If Pete wasn't there and they did make some front office or coaching overhauls, I would think maybe this is time the time to strike. Russ is getting up into his mid-30s, whatever that's worth. Maybe he's lost a little bit of that athleticism. Hasn't been trending well in the last year and a half or so, a year of play. So from a Seattle standpoint, it might be the best time to trade Russell Wilson if you want to get the organization back on track because there's not a clear path. Another, no first-round pick again. I mean, they talk about the Rams needing to hit on third-rounders. Again, this is why Seattle's roster has fallen apart. They haven't hit on picks like they did early last decade. That's it. Yeah. All right, man. We have plenty more to talk. So Wednesday, let's do – we'll do mailbag. Yeah, we have a, a bulging mailbag, as they say. Uh, there's a lot of emails that I haven't gotten to. Uh, so keep sending them, <laughs> even though I've just said we haven't looked at them for a while. I, they're there. They're saved. I will go through them before Wednesday. Email us at nflpodcast uh, at pff.com or DM us using the Twitter account at – NFL or P, at PFF NFL Pod is the Twitter account. Either way, those will get us into uh, get us in, get in contact with us and give us stuff to talk about. Do not email NFL Podcast singular with the word singular in there. Correct, that doesn't work. Yeah, but just, NFL Podcast that is a singular podcast. Yeah, so as distinct. Email NFL Podcast. Yeah, at pff.com, and you'll get to us. Mm-hmm. And then we're gonna try to wrangle uh, Renner for like a draft kickoff. We did that last year and it was fun. Or Brad. So it's either draft or free agency. Draft or free agency. We'll grab one of them for later in the week and kick off the off season. Yeah, talk about all the free agent trends and, you know, overview of the draft and all that stuff coming up these next few weeks. First off, appreciate everybody for sticking with us the entire season. Yes. The Monday show here, we've been doing it at 7 a.m. just to get it out there as soon as possible to recap those Sunday games. We're going to move the live show back a little bit, probably 9 a.m. ish right. every single week here on YouTube. But you'll still get your podcast, what, late morning on Mondays, late morning, early afternoon, as far as the audio version goes. Um, so we're going to sleep in a little bit now as we get into the off season, if that's okay. Yeah, just a touch. Um, but a big thanks to everyone that's listening along for the entire season. Like, you guys allow us to do what we do, and it's fun. Yeah, we've got more uh, charity drives coming up. We have all sorts of goodies. We need to get stuff. to that. Now we we've, do. Uh, we're, we're ready. I got a thank you letter from the, the Kentucky people. The oh, really? Tornado people. That's awesome. For the donation. So that, that's not me. We didn't do any of that. Yeah. This is you guys. Thank we you should, for everybody. We should put that up here. Thank you to all of our listeners and viewers. So, yeah, we appreciate everybody. And uh, the fun has begun. The official, official, official start to the offseason. So we'll be talking about your teams quite a bit. Thanks, to everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you again on Wednesday.